Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly podcast about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. Uh, I'm in our Washington, D.C. studio with my sister, Debbie Shore. Deb, welcome back. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. Uh, And we've got in Pittsburgh two guests. Uh, This is actually an all-Pittsburgh podcast because Debbie and I are from Pittsburgh originally, and we still get back as often as we possibly can. But we've got uh, Bill Fuller from the Big Burrito Restaurant Group, who is an amazing chef and restaurateur. And we're just thrilled to have you on, Bill, and we're thrilled to be uh, in Pittsburgh, at least virtually. Hey, uh, nice to uh, talk with both of y'all. We've also got Christine Grady with us from Rivendale Farms and as an expert in sustainable farming and believes that animals should be treated like royalty and that happier cows make tastier milk, all the things I learned by studying up on Rivendale Farms. Christine, we're so glad to have you. Fantastic. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for being with us. Let me start with you, Bill, because you've been involved with us uh, a long time. And you've also got some Washington roots, I think, as well. My sister and I were arguing in the taxi over to the studio about whether you had ever been at Kramer Books because I had read that you'd been a cook there before you ended up connected to Jeff Bubin and uh, some of the D.C. restaurant scene. Is, am I right it, or wrong? So you're right. In uh, 1995, I met a girl at a Grateful Dead show in Virginia and uh, moved to D.C. to live with her. And, uh, well, that relationship came and went and came and went. But uh, <laughs> I did get a job first at Armand's Chicago Pizzeria uh, up on... Oh, on Wisconsin Yeah, Avenue. exactly. Long gone. Long gone. And then I got a job at Kramer yeah. Books and afterwards, which I thought was just... I'm from a small town in western Pennsylvania, so I thought that whole DuPont Circle, all-night bookstore, a cafe and a bookstore, that was great. I mean, Mary Chapin Carpenter used to come in there and play, and she was, like, it was pre doing anything she would just come and sit on the little tiny stage up, upstairs and oh, it was a, it was a blast well, that wasn't the woman you moved there for but Bill, no I, no no if it, if it was <laughs> i might be you know in a different place in my life right now hey hey bill just a very small piece of history on kramer books which was one of the very first places i ever went when i moved nice. to washington in like 1979 and when we started share Our strength um what we did was we went around to talk to restaurateurs and asked them to make a contribution and we would then you know promote their that the fact that they're a member of share strength and that they were helping uh to end hunger and they would put a sticker on their window and let their customer know that was kind of the original share strength idea henry posner i remember him was and his his wife sandy maybe i Uh. i never met him but he sent a check for five hundred dollars i'll never forget it and he was like the second restaurateur in the country to ever give us a contribution um, so the first one was across the street at Timberlakes. The first one was Bill Timberlake. Do you remember? Do you yep. remember Timberlakes? I remember Timberlakes. Yeah. I was that's I was so there long enough ago. Bill, yep. Bill gave me a check, and, and you know Henry gave me a check, and Ramon Campay from La Brasserie, mm-hmm. and th- I remember all the really early ones, and and Henry was one of them. And so, Bill, did you know back then that you were going to be a cook? That you were going to be a chef? No, I was going to be a novelist. That was my whole plan, <laughs> and so it was my plan in high school. And I left high school and hitchhiked around the country for a year. And, Ended up in D.C. with this hippie chick, and eventually I was going to write uh, the modern great American novel, and it just never quite felt it's not too it late. Happen might it's, still it's be not in too late, you. Bill. I couldn't focus that long. That's a lot of work. <laughs> uh, and tell tell us a little bit before we turn to Christine. Tell us a little bit more about uh, the path that uh, brought you to Pittsburgh and this amazing restaurant. Group. All right, so. Uh, while I was in Washington, D.C., I realized uh, moving there that when, if you live in Washington, D.C., you are surrounded by people from all over the world, all kinds of well-educated, fascinating, amazing people. And I realized that I was just a country boy. 
uh, from Western Pennsylvania. So I decided I needed to go to school and I ended up uh, starting school studying business, ended up in chemistry, got a degree in chemistry and went to grad school at Berkeley uh, in the PhD program for synthetic bio and organic chemistry. And I worked at that for about three years and realized that kind of wasn't my path. And I uh, wanted to move back east with it, with the same hippie chick at that point. It was we had spent some years together, <laughs> and um, we could patch her in if you have a number for her. We can make you know we uh, we're not together, but she uh, is a Reiki in, uh, in the instructor, I guess, mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Yeah, and so oh, but, wow. yeah, she ended up with a guy who they have a house in in San Francisco and one in uh, Tahoe, and she's very happy, and he seems like a great guy. But um, anyhow, I ended up back in D.C. And all the, you know, as I traveled and did things, I always worked as a cook. And it just kind of stuck at then. Or I ended up back in Pittsburgh. Sorry, not D.C. And then it, I, I got here in 95, uh, got involved with this restaurant group when they were opening their third restaurant, Kaya. And I've kind of grown with the groups ever since. And now you've got, uh, what, you've got 11 contemporary kitchen. You've got Casbah, Mediterranean kitchen, uh, a number of other restaurants. And we have 19 uh, now. Matt- Mad, nineteen. We I worked it out before we went on air. Christine asked me, and I'm like, I don't know, a bunch. So, <laughs> is there? Is, do you have a favorite among your kids? No, and it's funny. People ask me if I have a favorite restaurant, and I use that analogy. If it's somebody with kids, I say, Well, you have kids, right? Which kids your favorite? And you know, if you have kids right. on different days, different kids is, are your favorite. And sometimes you don't like any of your kids, and sometimes you love all your kids, and sometimes this kid is the good kid, and that kid's the jerk. So it's the same with the restaurants. Now, Christine, who did you meet at a Grateful Dead concert that took you to the well, farm? Well, this is the thing. I, I don't know how I'm going to top that story. It's like my brain's been churning. But, um, so <laughs> you can the, make up stories. Yeah, I could, I could totally make something up. Um, yeah, I had a sort of somewhat circuitous and almost accidental arrival in Pittsburgh. So, you know, my background was sort of corporate world um, and, you know, my my childhood and my adult career to date have been very peripatetic, but I've now been in Pittsburgh for about six years, which is quite <clears throat> quite something for me, and I plan to stay. But uh, having started in sort of, um, actually my first job was in Boston, in Cambridge. I worked for a company, a strategy consulting firm called Monitor Company, which is now sure. Deloitte's strategy group. And I moved with them from... Boston to London, worked in their London office for a while, and then joined two of the consultants from the London office who then set up their own um, sort of IT consulting organization. And then I worked with them when they started the business. They were about, I think I was employee number 15. And then when I left um, about six or seven years ago, there were about 1,400 of us, and we had offices all over um, and I was head of corporate communications for the group. And, but I think what, what happened is I got to a point when I was working on a specific bid um, for it. We did a lot of local government outsourcing IT contracts, so long-term um, outsourced contracts. And I was working on a bid for two years for this one client, and I was working on site. And it was the other side of London from me. And I was leaving my house at 6 a.m. to get to this client site for 8 a.m. daily meetings. And if I was lucky, I was getting home at 8 p.m., trying to then get something to eat, go to bed, do the same thing again. And that was two years. And I thought, you can live in the most amazing city in the world, but what's the point if you're not enjoying it? So 
I um, decided to sort of follow passions of entrepreneurship and um, healthy food and sustainability and farming and everything else. And that led me to Erie for a couple of years. Long story short, after two years to in Erie? Erie, I decided to Erie, leave Erie. Erie. Now, how, did it, how did it lead you to Erie? <laughs> An old friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, she lives in Erie. I right. moved there to open a business with her. Her husband's in the Broadline uh, Food Distribution Company, Curtsy. You probably know them, Bill's mm-hmm. nodding. Um, so I opened a business with her in Erie that was sort of a little bit like a Dean and DeLuca type place. And I'd always said, I'll give Erie two years. I gave Erie two years. And um, the story could get even longer, so I'm going to try and keep it short at this point. But like, I have family in Pittsburgh. My sister's husband's an academic, so they've been here forever. So I was like, okay, I'm going to make a pit stop in Pittsburgh um, and think about what I want to do next, because I could go back to my old job in London. But actually, what I really love is working in food and agriculture and sustainability and everything else. and I was going to spend a couple of months in Pittsburgh to think about what's next. And that turned into six years. And I found that I can do what I love doing here in Pittsburgh. So that's that's what brought me here. That's awesome. I'm glad you're there. And tell us a little bit about Rivendell Farms itself. What's, you know, since mm-hmm. we're, we're all listening and not looking, paint a picture for us. So um, the farm was started a few years ago. Um, and I worked for... Uh, the the owner Thomas Toll, who's a very successful businessman and um, serial entrepreneur, I would say. And as he was moving his family back to Pittsburgh, had a desire to create a space where he could grow and produce healthy food, the best food possible for his his family. And he'd been working um, at some point in a in an advisory capacity with a previous administration, looking at big ag. And I think very conscious of what is happening with this agriculture in the U.S., um, large-scale agriculture, what that's doing to the health of people, but also the the environment. So he created Rivendell. Last year, we went through our first full year of production. It is a diversified farm, primarily dairy production. We have Jersey cows. Um, a couple hundred Jersey cows, um, Jersey cows specifically for the quality of the milk, which is higher in um, protein and calcium, probably about 20% higher in protein and calcium than um, Holstein milk is what you normally see on the shelves. Um, So we've got the cows and we use the milk for ice cream and dairy products, various dairy products. We have about seven acres of crop production, and we have a greenhouse that allows us to uh, farm year round or you know harvest year round, which is not easy in Pittsburgh winters. I'm sure you remember Pittsburgh winters. Yep. Um, and we have honeybees and we have some maple and we have pasture-raised hens. Um, so it's a, it's a variety um, of areas. But for the owner, one of the things that's particularly of interest is the confluence of technology and innovation and sustainability and he's quite well known for applying technology and innovation to disrupt industries on some level Um, so where we have robotics at the farm but the area that we're really focusing on at the moment working with CMU that's Carnegie Mellon University where it's around developing robots for small farmers. Christine how how do you and Bill know each other and, and for how many years? So I actually don't know Bill very well, but that's okay. 
No, uh, our, our vet, we have uh, we have some Venn diagram overlap. Yeah, there's as with anything in Pittsburgh, sort of I know of uh-huh. Bill and we've met Eleven. A couple times. We've met a few times. We have, gotcha. um, but we're also connected through. I, I worked on opening a restaurant with one of Bill's former employees. Yes. Um, so I I worked with a chef to open a restaurant in downtown Pittsburgh, but also once you're sort of connected to the to the restaurant well um you you do sort of know each other in Pittsburgh and I one thing I'm very familiar with is the amount of community work um that Big Burrito does as a group and I know I'm conscious of the fact that Bill takes a personal interest at any kind of uh fundraising um event you're pretty much guaranteed to to run into Bill and, you know, and I, and I want to hear all about that. And before we do that, I just one thing, uh, Christine, as I was reading about the farm that was so fascinating to me, um, was about uh, how the you know the, when when the cows are ready to <laughs> produce milk, instead of waiting for human hands, mm-hmm. they are milked by robots when they're ready to be. And I just you know, and then that creates just has a you know. Uh, kind of a um, terrific effect yeah. on their stress levels, and they produce more. Can you just explain sure. that process a little bit? Because then it's so, and also I'm wondering how prevalent that is around around the country. If, if it's it is. not all that prevalent around the country, the, there are two major automated or robotic systems for milking, and they're both from Scandinavia. Um, the one we use is Levy, and I think it's Danish. <clears throat> but they originally came about to address sort of costs of labor. Um, which, of course, small farms in Europe, high costs of labor, whereas in the U.S., um, people for a long time have had access to very inexpensive labor, although that is starting to change now. Um, I know, for example, in California, you're starting to see automation with a change in minimum wage. And then as immigration patterns are changing as well in the U.S., we're starting to see more automation. But robotic milking and robotic dairies in uh in europe and scandinavia are quite common so what happens is it's a it's a basically sort of on-demand system which is great and what you want more than anything is for the animals to be relaxed um, and comfortable so if, if the cows are getting anxious um, that impacts the milk yield and the quality of the milk um, so, so in our barn, the cows can basically, you know, hang out and relax in the pack when they want to do that. They can sleep. If they are hungry and they want food, they walk up to the feeding area. And when they want to get milked, they walk into a stall that automatically milks them. Um, it's actually funny. I was showing some people around the farm this morning and we were looking at it and they very politely line up to get into the robot um there were probably four or five cows just kind of standing there watching as the other one goes through so they and they all have id trackers so um a lot of this work is done by tracking through an app so we have a cow a barn that can can accommodate about 180 cows but we have one person managing it and most of the time when I go in there there's no one there Um, because they'll get alerts on their phone as if anything is off based on you know how much movement should there be with a cow what should the weight fluctuation be how much milk should they be giving all of that is managed through these apps but so they walk into a if they want to get milked they walk into this um, you know basically a stall 
and the system knows which cow it is. It knows how recently they milked and therefore sometimes have they come back too early and if so, it kicks them back out the system again. How many Um, times a day do they milk? So they generally, so traditionally a cow would be milked twice. Right, morning and night. Exactly. With this system, they generally milk themselves about four times in a 24-hour period. And you tend to get about 15% more milk from the cow through the sort of self-service. Which is probably more natural. I mean, if if you think of nursing calves, they're going to hit it all the time. Exactly. Exactly. So the cows prefer this. They do. They like, well, they they get a tiny treat as well. So there's kind of a little bit of an incentive. But as, uh, as with any mammal, I would say they, they start to feel uncomfortable when their udders get full of milk and they want to get milked. So they can walk into this, they can get milked. We know exactly how much milk we're getting from each cow, from each teat. Um, and yeah, they can, uh, you get a better milk yield. And we also, one of the things that allows us to do is make very real time decisions about their diet or any changes that we want to make. Because we know how much, what the fat content is per milk, per, uh, per cow and with their milk. So um, it just, it, whereas before, you know, farmers probably didn't know exactly until the results come back from the processor, how much fat was in their milk we can make very active and real-time decisions based on the data that we're getting from the system. And Christine, you're saying that, uh, you know, depending on the way the cows are treated, the way they're milked and so forth, uh, it actually affects the kind of the chemical structure, the content of the milk. I think linking the happiness and the quality of the milk might be a little bit of a stretch, uh, but there is, there is absolutely... I, I would believe in that. Yeah. I mean... There is there is something about the their comfort level and the quality of the way that they process um, everything in their body and the final outcome, which is which is the milk. So, I, you know, to some extent, right. yes. I wonder if you could preemptively so, set the milker to detect it when they need milk and milk them before they even feel it, if it would even improve mm-hmm. it more. Because that's really, yeah. if you have a nursing calf, it's not you. The cow deciding when it, to nurse, but the True. calf it's deciding the calf when to deciding. nurse. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. This, stu- yeah. this kind of stuff totally, totally gets. Me. I bet it, it geeks it is you. Out. It totally geeks me out. <laughs> and, and, and so, Bill, as a chef who thinks about food all the time and quality of food, health, uh, how do you, uh, and and as also somebody who's running a business that has to balance the, you know, kind of price sensitivities and the economic demands of a restaurant with uh, wanting to probably you know, have the kind of ingredients that come from a place like Rivendell Farms. How do you make those decisions? How do you balance? How do you, how conscious of, of it are you as a, a chef and a restaurateur? Well, that's, that's a huge question because as I'm listening to Christine, I'm thinking, that's really cool. That's really cool. And I'm also thinking like, how much did that software cost? And oh my God, I know robots cost a zillion dollars and I've seen the facility. So, you know, there's a substantial investment. So I'm thinking about both sides of it as, as she talks. Um, you know, it's 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 a difficult line to walk. Um, you know, if I if everything that every piece of food I cooked could come from within fifty miles, and I could pay all my uh, cooks seventy five thousand dollars a year, and, you know, and, and not charge a lot of money, I would do all that. But you know, there there is a, a necessity to make money, and so we have to make decisions trying to balance our um, ethical view on the world, and you know. I got two kids about to go to college, you know, so there's there's right. a balance there. So, so the 
the, the farming has to be sustainable, but the restaurant has to be sustainable right. as well. Right, and we, we, we've made over the years, especially in the last five, some changes about the sustainability of how we operate, especially as regards employees. Um, we forcibly cut back people's work weeks. Um, very few people work more than 50 hours a week. A lot of them we force 40 uh, or less. And uh, it really has improved the the way you know the outlook of our employees and their happiness. And we've also um, you know extended benefits beyond the manager level, which is very expensive in the restaurant business. And when when you're a restaurateur and you talk about what you offer your employees, if you're talking to somebody who works for a major corporation or a university, and they think it sounds draconian. But when you look at you know margins, a fine dining restaurant might have a margin of three four percent, and to, to you know, it's hard to keep those margins and keep the place going. Um, I'm sure Christine learned all about that with opening of Union Standard, and uh, so it's hard to make those decisions, you know. And sometimes, sometimes you need red peppers in December. So you, the red peppers in December, they're not going to come from even Rivendell couldn't grow enough if they mm. covered acres and acres in greenhouses. So they they have to come from Mexico or South America. So you you have to make decisions to, you know, not be local or not sort of be pure because you need to run your operation that way too i don't I, yep. yeah it's it's tough well, you know like i said we would uh, do everything the right way if uh you know if profitability didn't have to be a factor right well and i think a lot of us feel like you you know um you can't always do everything right all at once right that it takes time it's a trajectory it's a it's a path that you're that you're on and moving in that direction it sounds like um you know, Christine painted us a, a little picture of the farm. Paint us a picture of one of your your restaurants, and or all of them, or any one that you like. Just uh, you know, tell us like what kind of guest experience you're trying to create. Um, give us a you know, if we could uh, taste the food with our ears, what would we taste? So we we just opened a brand new restaurant, and it's uh, it's called Altavi, and it's a modern Italian place, and. Uh, uh, and really, I think it was five weeks ago we opened the door, mm-hmm. so we just opened it. So it's it's fresh in my brain. And Christine was in for dinner about two weeks ago, too. It's delicious. So. Actually, really delicious. And thank you, thank you. What did you have, Christine? I think we particularly, the couple of dishes, I mean, we were so full on appetizers that by the time we got to the pasta, I def- mm-hmm. I, we definitely had some cacio e pepe, which was amazing. But the starters in particular, I love there was an eggplant, like a roasted eggplant dish we basically like scoop it oh yeah we roast the so we have a we sort of built the restaurant around a wood fire grill and wood fired oven and made in house pasta and lots of vegetables and so we have this vegetable section that's not just you know some some sauteed green beans with red pepper flakes it's you know we really try to create some nice dishes and one of them that christine was talking about we take a whole eggplant and roast it really slowly on the grill so inside you know that all that flesh turns nice and soft and rich and then we split it open on the plate drizzle it with some uh, lemon juice and extra virgin olive oil and some spicy calabrian chilies and then serve some bread with it you just take a spoon and kind of scoop the eggplant guts out and smear them on the bread and eat it that's like one of my favorite dishes so good it's so so good and you know and one that's a good name eggplant guts Mm -hmm. eggplant we don't call it eggplant guts in the menu but that's what we call it in the kitchen (laughs) It, so it sounds like uh, just knowing a little bit about um, some of the food that's inspired you, Bill, that, you know, Thai food and food from, from Mexico. To, so you have all these restaurants. Are they all kind of different cuisines? Yeah, we have uh, one group of restaurants called Mad Mex, which is uh, we call it California Mexican, but it's really just kind of Mexican. I mean, there's tortillas and uh, some spicy food, but it's, you know, an Americanized Mexican uh, 
all made from scratch, fresh, made light, no lard, no refried beans, lots of, you know, fresh salsas and things. And we have 13 of those. And then we have Kaya, which is a tropical Caribbean kind of place. Uh, a lot of small plates. Uh, we call them tropas, which is short for tropical tapas, which was a ridiculous <laughs> word we made up 25 years ago, and it's persisted. Um, we have Soba, which is a Pan-Asian restaurant. Umi, which is a higher-end Japanese restaurant. Uh, and uh, Eleven, Modern American Fine Dining, which was the last place we did a Share Our Strength event in Pittsburgh. Um, Christine, you were talking a little bit earlier about um, the issues related to health of people and health of the environment that are related to corporate agriculture, some of which are addressed through the kind of sustainable agriculture Rivendell Farms mm -hmm. is, um, is known for. What should we know about that as we think about uh, how corporate agriculture relates to Oof. health of both people <clears throat> and the environment? So I think, um, you know, as we look at large scale agriculture across the US, you know, farms got bigger and bigger and bigger automating there were the farms that could afford the automation and um you know they're they're sort of large-scale automation so it's giant harvesters or you're spraying chemicals and you know certainly sort of using robotics and technology to spray chemicals is not what we want to do at the farm but as large-scale agriculture got sort of more efficient and more competitive smaller farms started disappearing from the landscape and it's the it's the small and medium-sized farms how do they compete when the big guys have money to invest in automation that makes them more efficient more cost effective and driving small farms out of business and particularly now that we're in the in the dairy business um you know we see what a struggle that is and you a small farm can't survive on selling milk. It has to be about turning those milk, those that milk into value-added products, um, and not everyone can do that. You guys should make an American Parmesan. We, sh I really want to make like a real two-year-aged hard cheese. I know we've got we've got a lot going on though. I'm trying to, I'm trying to not add, but I desperately want to do cheese. Like I want to do an amazing aged cheddar or something as well of course you would but uh, yeah sorry <laughs> <laughs> so but i but i think what so we talked about how the automation and the dairy that is you know fairly mature technology fairly well adopted refined but what you don't see on the market at the moment is technology or innovation that can really help small-scale farmers. And that's what we're working on with uh, CMU, Carnegie Mellon University, and their robotics, the School of Robotics there. And it's one of the best in the world. Um, and we are working with them to develop a robot that will work in the fields. And this is you know, largely to address the challenges of a small-scale farmer and an organic farmer. So all of the things that are very time-consuming and difficult for small farmers and require a lot of manpower, it's keeping your crops uh, clear of weeds. It's um, pest detection, particularly if you're not using chemicals. So, you know, all the time that you would spend walking the fields and 
monitoring for all of this to make sure that the weeds are not swallowing up the nutrients or stealing sunlight from your crop and that pests are not coming in and um, eating your crops. But this means that you need a much smarter level of technology. You know, it's not sort of mm -hmm. automated harvesting on thousands of acres. It's a robot that knows which is a good pest and which is a bad pest. And that's different for different crops. So there's a huge amount of sort of <clears throat> work that we're doing to develop this artificial intelligence where the robot understands what's the weed and what's the crop. Like you don't want the robot going down and pulling out your entire crop. It needs to know what's, what's a good plant and a bad plant. Or, hey, there's this pest in the corner of your brassicas crop, which you should be aware of because it's a bad pest and it's gonna destroy them. So there are tools available for big ag to invest in, in that, make them more and more competitive and, you know, doing the things that we don't necessarily want to see continuing or increasing. We want to see people preserving farmland and farming it well and preserving it for future generations and nurturing the landscape and nurturing the health of the community and where are the tools for those smaller farmers? So I think we're fortunate to be in a position to be able to work with CMU to provide them a space and environment to do this um, and invest in it with them as well. So I think that's very important. Well, yeah, you know, there's so many um, far-ranging consequences to what you're speaking about. Uh, I don't know if you know the uh, farmer and writer Wendell Berry yes, in Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was, I was, I just had the, the treat of being able to spend a couple hours with him. We had a conference in Kentucky. And Wonderful. I wrote him a letter the old fashioned way that you do. And um, he wrote back on a letter a couple weeks later saying, yeah, stop by at three o'clock. <laughs> but he, he, and, and we spent time with him at his uh, house he's lived in for 60 years. And I think he's a beautiful writer. He I was is. just like, uh, I, I was, you know, beside myself getting to spend time with him. But he talks a lot about, you know, when the small farms disappear. Uh, we also end up uh, not having the same relations with people that we do. When you have tractors and, uh, you know, thousands of acres, uh, you don't need the neighbor next door like you did when you just had a small farm and you don't have the same kind of relations. And so many uh, aspects of our community uh, start to uh, unravel and fray as a result of the, the disappearance of these um, small farms and these, you know, communities that once worked together. So... Um, I feel like mm -hmm. what you're talking about is so important for so many exactly. reasons that not, not just the health of our, our food and our bodies, but kind of our civic and our, our social health. I know Debbie had a question. Yeah, I was wondering, is, the, I, is it right to assume that the vision behind what you're doing there, a prototype for, you know, more farms and other places, either throughout Pennsylvania or other mm -hmm. places? Yeah, absolutely. So, um you know, this is the first phase of the work that we're doing with Carnegie Mellon. But yes, it's about developing a prototype that, you know, they, they have various organizations, tech companies that they work with. So the idea is that if we get this prototype to a point where, in fact, they're coming back next week to do another round of testing in the field, um, you know, do you then take this to the next level? And there are many ways that that can be done through other incubators or tech startups. But yeah, the goal is to really help to develop these tools and this innovation um, to help small farmers. And clearly it takes some time before they're, they're affordable, but we've got to start that process now. 
Christine, having worked with a lot of small farmers and trying to get them to plant the things that I need rather than plant the crops they've planted for 30 years, farmers in general are really conservative and slow to change. Is there thoughts on the work you're doing? How, okay, so now I have this cool robot to detect the aphids. Uh, How am I going to get Farmer Bob, who's 63 years old and done it the same way, to actually make a change and use the technology? So I think one of the things that's incredibly important is to actually attract the younger generation into farming because farming is or has been very much a sort of generational um, environment. You inherit the farm from, you know, your grandparents or your parents and it, it continues on that way and you tend to repeat what you've learned from previous generations. But as, as I was saying before, small farms and medium-sized farms have been disappearing. So you actually need to attract a new workforce. And maybe that's a workforce that is, um, you know, more interested in looking at how to innovate and do something slightly different with farming. Um, so, yeah, it is, it's definitely an issue. And we were, in fact, when we were at um, this conference with, and uh, in DC in it was January or February I think and uh, you know the question is actually as farming and ag matures and you bring ag tech into play how do you how do you address that labor gap the gap in the workforce who's doing this farming and what skills do they have um, and how do you attract a workforce back into um, into farming in general so it's I, it's for sure a, a big question and i don't know that yeah and it's it's difficult because the land becomes once it goes out of farming and into development the land disappears or becomes too expensive and so you have more higher and higher costs of entry mm-hmm. for farmers you know because a lot of the farms uh, were divvied up in the 1800s when land was pretty much free here still yeah and one of the one of the challenges in in Western PA as well is with when you can make a lot of money from letting someone frack on your land, you know that's an attractive option for someone who's worked their fingers to the bone farming and not making a decent living. But the the Western PA Conservancy is actually doing something fairly interesting, and I don't know how much this is being done in other parts of the U.S., but they're essentially. Um, buying land and sort of leasing it or bringing young farmers on board so they're saying okay here we've got 60 acres um we're looking for a couple of young farmers or someone who's interested in getting into farming and cultivating this land um so barrier to entry to some extent diminished um by the west someone like the western pa and i don't know exactly how they organize it whether it's kind of a lease to buy or um but i think programs like that um you know i i think that's an interesting model and and it has to be livable you have to be able to make a living at it which it isn't right now uh hey bill uh since we're talking pittsburgh a little bit tell us just give us a sense of what the uh pittsburgh culinary community is like what your customers are like are they are are they adventurous in a culinary sense are they traditional how should we think of our old hometown since we haven't been there for a while that's an interesting question you know when i for for us minio's is the best restaurant in in pittsburgh yeah we're minio's pizza minio's Minio's is the pizza of pittsburgh and there are people that disagree, and they're wrong. <laughs> they're wrong. They're wrong Minio's Bill. is they're the pizza wrong. of Pittsburgh. No, not Aiello's. There's a, a, a silent woman over here in the studio 
who is <laughs> mouthing the word Aiello's. And Aiello's right. is perfectly fine pizza, but it's a derivative of <clears throat> Minio's. You've got That's it right. Yeah. But anything else you can tell us about Pittsburgh so diners? So when, when I came here 25 years ago, you know, Pittsburgh was really, you know, at the, about the bottom of its downswing. Uh, the this this tech industry, the CMU Robotics and the UPMC Medical Center and uh, all the doctors they bring in and all the other sort of growth and exciting things that have happened in the last 25 years were just in their very, very, you know, juvenile forms. I mean, it was 25 years ago. There was hardly even like there weren't even cell phones. Um, and so there was an old Pittsburgh population that, uh, you know, dining out meant big plates of pasta and you always had to take some home and price was really a, a, a important seasonality didn't matter um and i moved back here i was living in the bay area and i moved back here and i thought well i'm leaving behind excellent wine and excellent food and the ocean and the mountains and you know san francisco i'm leaving it all behind but at least when i get back and the to, hippie chick well she came back with me she came back with me um uh, Pittsburgh was the, the, the rocks upon which the, our wave crashed, and that was the end of that. <laughs> but um, uh, I thought, well, I'll come back, and I'm from western Pennsylvania. I know there will be a lot of small farmers, and I should be able to really sort of get a lot of interesting good food. And, you know, I came back, and that wasn't even happening a lot either. It was sort of a, a, a barren desert, and um, the diners didn't expect it, and the supply wasn't there. And so it was great to sort of work with people over the, the years. And I'm like, well, I'm going to find them. And, you know, begin to sort of develop com- connections with local smart, small farmers. And Keith Martin, who does Elysian Fields Lamb, I was his second customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started to work with some other farmers, formed a co-op called Penn's Corner Farm Alliance with uh, a group of about 20 uh, southwest Pennsylvania farmers. And over the years, as Pittsburgh changed, you saw different dining habits. You know, people would come here from other cities and they would say, well, you know, I'm leaving New York City to go live in Pittsburgh to you know work at the hospital. I hope there's some good food, and they had expectations of food that you have in other major cities, and they expect seasonal menus and high quality produce and perfect fish and you know great meat. And so it was great to sort of watch this transition, this transformation, and to, and to kind of ride along with it. Like it was really sort of it was really beautiful, you know. And we're at a place now where you know you know Justin Severino, a chef here, has a a Spanish restaurant in Morcia, and people go there and eat, you know, weird charcuterie and organ meats, and they don't bat an eye, and it's great. And we have our Pittsburghers have grown. The ones that are from here and have been here have grown and become sophisticated. The Pittsburghers that left and came back come back with, you know, impressions of what food and dining should be from other cities. And then we have the, all these people that have moved here, come work for Duolingo or come work for Uber or come work for Facebook. Um, who have their expectations of what food should be from their different parts of the country. And it's, it's a great, it's a great time to be here and be in food because all these different people just, you know, they appreciate good food. I still think Pittsburgh likes big portions though. Yeah. (laughs) I think you're right. Um, Well, let me ask you as we wrap up, uh, tell us what's next for each of you, Christine, five years from now, what's the farm look like Mm. if, uh, if all your dreams come true? Um, I think we, I mean, if our dreams came true, we would be known as a center of tech innovation for the farming industry across the US. That's what I'd like to see. And we're really interested in focusing much more on the educational and teaching aspect um, and being able to do something that can really change 
the environment for small, medium-sized farms would be fantastic. And you'd both made reference to Carnegie Mellon University, which I think of as <coughs> one of the really great treasures in Pittsburgh. Not everybody everywhere knows about it. It sounds like they've been a pretty important partner. They've been a critical partner for us. They have uh, Their robotics school has a, a, a department called Farm View. Um, so they've been working on slowly developing some of these, I shouldn't say slowly, they've been working on developing some of these technologies um, for some time. Um, but their test sites up until now have been, you know, in other countries or way across the US. So to have um, someone in Pittsburgh or just, you know, half an hour away from CMU where they where we're able to give them the space and time um, to do that and work with them specifically on um, developing those technologies. I know that that is um, that's a, a huge thing for them and they're super excited about that. We've been working with George Cantor um, at CMU, the head of the, the School of Robotics there. And, you know, we have many more projects planned um, in the future. So I think it's, it's been a perfect, um, perfect match, really. Uh, and Christine, the best way for people to learn more about Rivendell is uh, a website, I'm assuming? Uh, yes, I would say uh, rivendellfarms.com um, is a good way to learn. And um, some people might have seen, we were fortunate enough to be um, written up New York Times Oof, I think that was in February, the February, the farm of the future, um, where yep. they talked a lot about the tech and innovation at the farm. But yes, that's our website. Do you have an Instagram? The we farm? do have an Instagram. Is it just Rivendell Farms? It is Rivendell Farms at Rivendell Farms. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. We're on it. And, and Bill, <laughs> uh, ni ni 19 restaurants enough or are there going to be more? No, we definitely, we have, um, you know, we have this Mad Mex group that, is definitely a scalable concept and we think we have another scalable concept or two i'd like to open some new things uh we had a you know an early part of our history as a company where we did a lot of stuff a lot of different concepts and restaurants and then we kind of had a quiet period and you know we're currently now coming out of that quiet period i think there's a lot um there's a lot of opportunity here in pittsburgh uh and in the region and then in other markets and i'm kind of excited for the next five years um but nothing outside of pittsburgh or outside of the state, we're, we're only a few hours away here mm -hmm. in Washington D.C. Washington D.C. That's a uh, that's a fascinating market. That's a fascinating market. I'm really I'm a little bit afraid of it. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of competition there. Hey, you know, I, Christine, I want to tell you one thing before we we get off, which is um, and not to be morbid at all, but my brother um, would love to have his ashes spread on a cow pasture. Because he loves ice cream. I want to be part of ice cream. I want to be part of the ice cream of the future. You know, we'll send you my family, that's prematurely where I want to some ice cream. Like, I just before your death, we'll send you some we, ice cream. We, yeah, so, that would be good. We yeah. would love that. <laughs> come, up with the, come up with the right name for it. <laughs> I'm so glad my sister brought that up. This will be our last podcast, unfortunately. For Together. Sister, but, um, he always guys, talks about doing that. Thank you so much for doing this, both of you. Bill Fuller from the Big Breeder Restaurant Group. Um, and for all the ways that you've been involved with not just share our strength, but with so many other good causes. Um, really, really a, a treat to be able to talk to you, Bill. Thanks Thank for you. having me. Uh, and Christine Grady from Rivendell Farms, and the address is rivendellfarms.com for the website. And as Bill suggested, check out the Instagram page. Uh, you are doing such amazing work on what the future of agriculture looks like. Um, it's really been special to get to learn more about it. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time. 
and um, for my sister Debbie Shore and for myself uh, and for our whole team at Share Our Strength and for our podcast producer District Productive and our our producer Woody, uh, Paul Whittle, who, by the way, is riding 300 miles uh, in two weeks on Chef Cycle Ride, and he's not even a chef, but he's doing it and helping to raise money for the No Kid Hungry campaign. And for the whole team at Share Our Strength and Kelly Griffin, who always makes this podcast uh, work, um, I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull.